Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is Episode 8 in our series for 2015, and today's date is Friday the 27th of March. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, we've got a terrific interview with uh, MYOB Chief Technical Officer Simon Rake Allen. He's going to be talking to us all about the future of business as it deals with current and approaching technology. Yeah, very interesting ears too. They're uh, quite an outfit, MYOB. That's right, that's right. And then we have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen all about the the way universities should handle the teaching of science and technology and maths. And, uh, you know, it's quite an issue at the moment. Uh, it's a huge issue because the people with those skills are very badly needed in the modern era. And as I said to him, the, the fundamental irony, of course, is that all the people in Silicon Valley are all university dropouts and they taught themselves themselves that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's right. I mean, but, you know, they had a very good grounding initially, I think, and particularly in mathematics and statistics and things like that. These are the talents that they want. And if they dropped out, it was probably because they found their uh, their tutors weren't up to their speed and altitude. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, let, let's hear from MYB Chief Technical Officer Simon Rake Allen. Uh, we're talking to Simon Rake Allen, who's the Chief Technology Officer of one of the most interesting accounting software companies in the world, MYOB. Uh, welcome, Simon. You've just produced a report, I gather, on the fact that the future ain't what it used to be and uh, how it's going to cause a revolution in business. So could you start by telling us some of your major conclusions? Oh, hi. Thank you, Gary. Yes. So, so if you look at what's happening today and then you extrapolate out into about 25 years, I think it's, you know, it's, it paints an exciting picture of what's coming, coming down the pipe. So one of the big things I think is going to happen is that because of the pressure on the, um, on the environment and of our carbon footprint, etc., we will be forced to travel less, less roads, less freeways, less car driving, less buses, less all that kind of stuff, less, um, less pollution. So if you aren't going to be driving and you aren't going to be travelling, how are we going to work? Well, what I think is going to happen is because of that, we will emerge, what will emerge will be these suburban villages out in the suburbs. Like you'll work in a, in a local region and they'll be in the centre of town, like great facilities um, for you to have all the technology that you need jam-packed in there. And so you'll be like these these giant um, offices where they've got giant wall screens. As you see today, screens are getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day. They're going to stop when they hit the ceiling and hit the floor. So I think will, everything will just be touchscreen and every wall will be a monitor. And um, you will be working in these places and you'll be able to you know, swipe your hands in you know, multi-touch screens and many people working on the same screen, on the same wall. You'll be flicking work down the corridor, down, you know, and down the screen. You'll be putting things in the pipelines. You'll be speaking to people. Um, but you'll also be working with holograms. Holographic technology right now is, is emerging. There are lots of new startups with new kinds of technologies for doing holographic projection. And what I mean by holographic projection is a 3D light representation of, of people and so you'll be able to work in these in these um, in these tech centers you'll be able to work with 
a completely remote team. So I might go down there with three of my colleagues. We'll walk down the street. We'll go into our room, and there we'll be working potentially in the Google office in the USA, for example. Um, and you will have be able to have you know companies that are completely made up of virtual employees. People are who are light representation. So I think that's one big thing that's going to be that's going to be going on, and that's the way we work and how we work. I think also at these places there'll be giant banks of 3D printers. 3D printing technology is now becoming much more, much cheaper. Um, lots of people have them. They're being used in many industries right now. And you can think of how that is going to grow over the next 25 years. You know, you'll be able to um, maybe one day go as a hologram, go searching the world for a beautiful, you know, engagement ring and you better find some cool designer in some place somewhere as a virtual person, uh, as a 3D hologram somewhere, and you'll get that design printed at the local center, and they'll have these big industrial-sized uh, printers. I think it'll be more like ATMs. Because, you know, you don't have an ATM in your house because they don't want to put the uh, the money in your house. You'll have the you'll have these printers at these centers where it's much more secure because the printers will be able to print gold and diamond and platinum, very expensive materials. So you won't have that yourself. Uh, you'll have to you have to use somebody else's. So that's one of the trends I talk about. I think the other trend would be what's happening to people and our biology. We are seeing today trends around being able to do what's called biohacking, that is insert computer chips into your body. You know, the, the classic one would be, you know, for diabetes, having a little chip that's monitoring your, your vital signs and, t and your blood sugar levels and then, in, and, and then inserting into your bloodstream directly insulin as needed. That would be a huge, a huge benefit to people. But that's only one of, you know, hundreds of different things. Uh, you know, you saw in, in Star Trek, they have, or they have the, the tricorder, which, you know, you, the doctor waves over your body. I don't think we'll be doing that. I think we'll have sensors on the inside and you'll Bluetooth them, you know, to a screen in the doctor's studio or onto your, onto your mobile phone. That'll tell you exactly what's going on and you'll be able to, you know, we'll be a lot more healthy because we'll know exactly what's happening. We'll know when we need to eat and we'll know what we need to eat. What's our, you know, what the vitamin levels are. Your phone will say, you know, give you suggestions. You, you need a banana right now. Those kinds of things will be, you know, will be trivial. But also we'll be able to have these uh, chips embedded maybe in our, in our various muscles to see, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, the, you know, how, they, how they're doing. Do you need to do some exercise on a particular muscle? Uh, be able to monitor bone density of each of your bones. And we know that you know, when you put pressure on a bone, it, the density improves. And, and as you get older, that, that starts to degrade. So this would be a great, a, a great device for you know, keeping track and making sure you, that your body is you know, performing the way you'd like it to. I also see things like currencies changing radically. We are seeing now the early stages of digital online digital currencies. Bitcoin is doing very well. I mean, the algorithm underneath the Bitcoin is, is, is really fabulous. I think it's still got some work to do. And in 25 years, I think companies will be creating their own currencies as needed. Right? There will be closed currencies, like there will be Google have their own currency. You'll be able to have Googs and Faces and Myobs. There'll be these currencies that you can use in a closed environment. And then there'll be trading exchanges that will emerge that will allow you to uh, trade you know, an exchange, you know, five Googs for four Myobs or whatever the case may be. So, I mean, what impact is that going to have on businesses Simon, I mean, obviously, uh, something like uh, 3D printing is going to affect manufacturing. Uh, uh, the growth of these suburban centres will have huge implications for real estate uh, and, and, of course, currencies. I mean, uh, each, each company will have their own currency. How will this affect businesses? 
what will happen is it'll start to it it will it will allow the barter system um, within a within a company's uh, customer base to start tr- trading more freely. So it would re- I think it's really going to drive much more commerce because it's going to really ease what's going on, who can send to who, how easy it is to send to somebody, and keeping things in network creates a, a much more of a trust network. So you know um, a th- classic thing would maybe you know at NYB we've got many clients who are let's say carpenters and plumbers and artists, etc., they'll be able to trade um, and barter from each other completely freely, you know, in, in the future, which will allow them to, you know, really start to increase the amount of commerce that's done in, in industry and, and the flow of, of money through the, through the economy, which is always good for, you know, keeping a, a, an economy stimulated. Business itself is already global, so will some of these new technologies include instant translation, say from Chinese to English, this sort of thing? Yeah, and, and you know, Gary, we're, we're already seeing that today. You know, I've been playing with an app um, that you put your camera over a street sign and it shows you the street sign on your screen translated into your own language. I mean, that's, that stuff is fabulous. Uh, I think with biohacking, I think you'll, and when we start to get uh, plugins for the body. For example, you know, we know about the retina, a lot about the retina. There's like a hundred million neurons. We could probably, you know, very soon be able to create, you know, implants that go inside the eye and augment your eye. Maybe you can overlay information. I reckon it'd be, it'd be easy to download a eye plugin for your eyes in the future that does the translation on the fly for you. So as you see a sign, it will try to translate it, and then it will add, add the English text into the stream that it then passes on to your retina to do the normal, to do the normal processing. That, that will be trivial in the future. What about agriculture? Can you see that being handled by robots rather than humans? I certainly think there will be a lot more um, automation in, in agriculture. I mean, giant farms, they already do today, have so many pieces of equipment to help them get stuff done. You know, we used to have, you know, cows and, you know, used to, you know, do everything by hand. But, you know, we now do a lot more uh, stuff by, with, with machines and watering, all that kind of stuff. I think that absolutely the amount of automation will increase. If you want to call that robotics, yes, it's, you know, it's an advancement in automation. Uh, but what I also think uh, in line with what I talked about in terms of the distributed uh, villages and suburban villages, uh, we spend a lot of money transporting food from farms to the city centres, and I think that will become a lot more distributed. So we'll have the, each of these urban centres will also have farms located around them so that the food does not have to travel as far. But we're also when you're transporting food, I think that another revolution is going to help with, with that as well in that industry, and that is, that is transportation. So we're looking at you know, drones and um, autonomous vehicles and driverless cars, all those things will help. When you have driverless cars, what it means is the, the amount of metal that you have to put in the car is radically reduced. So the weight of the car is reduced, and when the weight to reduce the, the fuel consumptions reduced. So autonomous vehicles will be way, way, way more efficient because there's no human to protect in the vehicle. You're just carrying, you're just carrying goods. So that will help with the transportation of, um, of goods. You know, obviously distributed, distributed growing of crops is harder. You know, doing them in, in, a, in big batches is more efficient. But then you've got a, a transportation issue. And I think drones, i.e. helicopters and driverless cars will help with that radically. And I think what's going to happen with the road system is it'll be divided into two. There will be, there'll be roads that are built for uh, driverless vehicles and there'll be roads built for 
driver vehicles. So if you want to drive somewhere, it's going to be expensive, right? But you can still do it. And there are special roads with all the safety equipment that we know and love today. And that will, there'll be separate roads that are for all the driverless vehicles that can go much high speed, much more high speed and can go much closer together and, you know, and cross over more easily with, with algorithms driving those cars with less risk to, to humans. Simon Rake, Alan, thank you very much for your time. It's fascinating. You're welcome. Thank you. I thought that was pretty good, Leon. He's he's a great enthusiast, is Simon. You can tell by the energy in his voice that he's just really wrapped up in his subject. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really good. It was really good. It's uh, absolutely intriguing that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So now, Nick Gruen, Nicholas Gruen, uh, tell us your views about uh, the role of science, technology, engineering, and maths in education. It seems to be a huge issue at the moment. Yeah, everyone's getting themselves excited. I've described the STEM agenda as a part culture war, part cargo cult. So the way it works is that various people, typically from universities, also from the school's lobby, uh, say to us, you know, do we want to be a clever country or do we want to be a dumb country? Well, the answer to that's pretty obvious. So they say, well, you want to get into science, technology, engineering and maths because those are the things that drive innovation. Well, there's a whole bunch of things that need to be unpacked there. Firstly, it's not very clear what drives innovation. One of the things that most obviously drives innovation is ICT, telecommunications and information technology. And the thing, the, the, the STEM subject, the science, technology, engineering and maths subject behind that is coding, uh, computer coding and things like big data and stuff like that. Now, science teachers, maths teachers have shown no interest in that subject. I was taught more coding in school when I went through high school in the late 60s and early 70s than my kids have been taught in similar schools. Uh, so that's just the start. And then there's a whole lot of other issues about whether schools really want to teach to the merits of these subjects or whether they just want to say these subjects are great subjects and we want to teach them just the way we've always taught them. But is it the issue, I mean, when you look at a place like uh, Silicon Valley, I mean, the reality is that uh, most of the practitioners who've work out of Silicon Valley have actually taught themselves. They haven't, a lot of them are university dropouts. That's right. And, uh, you know, they never achieved anything at university. They never learnt it. So they taught themselves. Pretty much everyone. And isn't that an indictment? Isn't that an extraordinary indictment? And not only do they drop out of university, but they really don't even come back. So you would think that, you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg or someone or Bill Gates and you feel you have to drop out, because you're in a hurry, you know, you've got the next big thing and you know that you've got to get there before somebody else does, then you would expect them to drop out, feel a bit empty inside, as it were, and, you know, within the next decade start coming back and enriching their education, and they don't. So what's really happening is that we have these disciplines which are kind of self-powering, they're self-referential, their whole professional worlds of journals and people write for the journals, uh, they don't really actually write to solve problems. They write to get articles in journals and the journals themselves, they have some relationship with knowledge, but it, the, the, the actual, what that relationship is, is, is a much more problematic one than 
than we imagine. Uh, so I know, I know this in economics, uh, and I can't speak for science, technology, engineering, and maths, but I certainly know some scientists who say that it's nearly as bad in science as it is in economics. And the thing about things that are bad in science is that you've um, usually got a clearer idea of things because in economics, uh, opinion is so important and it's, it's, it's basically impossible to definitively prove people who disagree with you wrong, whereas in science there is a degree of uh, uh, inevitability about uh, getting to better answers over time. The other issue too is, I mean, we have fewer people are now taking information technology courses at university than they than they were in the past. That's right. And and I had a long conversation with the then head of the Victorian Department of Education. Must have been six or seven years ago. That was uh, Peter Dawkins. He's now vice chancellor of Victoria University. He was uh, I knew him because he was an economist. He used to be the head of the Melbourne Institute for Social and Economic Research. It might be the Melbourne Institute for Economic and Social Research. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, so I knew him and I just had a long lunch with him and he said, would I like to come and talk to his department about this? Because what I'd said to him, I'd sort of raised some of these things and I said, look, I think these are really big issues and we should be teaching coding in schools, but don't, whatever you do, go out, you know, if you believe what I'm saying, and he seemed to be very taken with what I was saying, the last thing you should do is go out and announce a program to in-service 1,500 teachers in Victoria and have the teachers teaching ICT because they don't really want to. So all of the tools to do this are actually lying around. You can send people to codeacademy.com. And back in those days, it's slightly different now, but back in those days, it was a quite a strange website. You'd get to it and there'd be this strange window which sort of said something like, type in here. And as you typed in there, it responded to you. And as it responded to you and you responded to the program, you started learning JavaScript. It was phenomenal. So are you saying that these uh, free resources on the net can teach you how to build a website or uh, how to learn JavaScript? They would work better than a university course. I'm saying that they have got to be part of the answer. Now, that doesn't mean that they're the complete answer. With some, with, with students who are sufficiently motivated, they can be a complete answer. But with others, they are part of the solutions. I've talked to, I think this is going on at Haileybury College. I've certainly talked to the, the uh, headmaster there and they've started up a, I believe they've started up a coding club. And so, you know, there are some resources giving, given to this. It's after school. They use Code Academy and the kids are encouraged to swap notes and help each other and build projects and so on. So it isn't just, oh, you want to do coding, go to Code Academy or some other website, but it is realizing that the resources are all around you and not having this instinct that large systems have of disappearing up their own fundament into their own system and saying, right, how do we now reinvent all this within our own system? That's catastrophic. And that's what our system has done again and again and again. And we're now, you know, 50, 60 years into this. And uh, as I see it, I know this is a somewhat confronting proposition, but as I see it, these institutions are, if we really measured their performance, they'd be in crisis. They're, uh, they're kind of going through the motions. And that's true of universities. It's true of schools. 
and they've barely changed. They have barely changed in the last 20 years. And yes, they use the internet as a tool to some extent. People can get their lectures recorded and listen to them, but that's about it. And really what should be happening is that education should be transforming. There should be lots of different models. We should be being able to work out, well, this model seems to work a bit better than that model. It's not really like that at all. They're just doing what they've always done. So are you saying that universities and schools should be working with these free resources on the internet? Oh, I'm saying that's just the beginning of it. I'm saying that these systems need to rethink their world from the point of view of their students, from the point of view of the knowledge they're imparting, and that that's not a matter of me just saying it in an interview. That's a hard thing to do because saying you need to use these resources is just the beginning of a process. It's then learning what works, learning what doesn't work, training people to help that process and so on. It's a a big exploration. It's the sort of exploration that firms are frenetically pursuing in Silicon Valley, and there should be some analogue of this in our educational system. But as it turns out, whenever anyone comes up with a, a really disruptive alternative like Coursera, they actually have to leave a university to do that. That's amazing. Don't you think that's amazing? We we spend billions, tens of billions, the whole world would spend hundreds of billions of dollars in universities, and yet they're still more or less doing what they were doing 50 years ago. And not taking in how the world is changing. Uh, and not being part of how the world is changing. Coursera is a public good. It's Most of its outputs are free. This is like Google. And most of its outputs are free, and most of the value it creates is given away, but it creates enough value that if some of that value can be monetized, which Coursera does through charging for certain uh, credentials and so on, then Coursera is viable. But isn't it remarkable that all these public goods of the 21st century, they have to be built by private institutions philanthropy in the case of Wikipedia and profit-making in the case of Google and probably Coursera, although Coursera probably starts with a social mission as well, and that all these institutions that we've built as public good institutions, which get huge amounts of public money, well, they just can't make the grade because they're so caught up in the institution that we've built that might have made sense for the world 30 years ago, but has changed. And all they can do is kind of say, yes, we can tape lectures and that'll be a useful thing. But that's pretty much all they can do. So universities have to fundamentally think their role? Well, I don't know about that. They need to experiment. They ought to be changing. And here we are with a massive debate about tertiary education funding. And hello, nobody's talking about any of this. This is just sort of innovation nice sort of stuff to talk about, but it's not the dollars and cents, and so the vice-chancellors don't care, the government doesn't care, no one really cares, and life goes on. And that's what's wrong with the STEM agenda, the same thing. Follow the money as the money and the institutions muck up the agenda that we really should be pursuing, which is an agenda to learn how to do things differently. I can only give you hints of how that different future might look because we have to build it. But uh, we're not really trying. 
Nicholas Gorin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what do you think, Leon? It's uh, it's a bit of a problem in Australia because we're not getting the people coming through. Well, yes, the universities have to change their model, as Nick Green says. So let's take a look at what happens. But, Gary, there's a lot of news happening this week. And first of all, Greece failed in a bid to secure a quick cash payment from the Eurozone Rescue Fund to help stave off potential bankruptcy next month. And Athens had appealed for the European Financial Stability Facility to return 1.2 billion euro. That's about 1.32 billion Aussie. It said it had overpaid when it transferred bonds intending for bank recapitalization back to the Luxembourg-based fund this month. But senior Eurozone officials say that Greece is not legally entitled to the money. Now, that decision by the Eurogroup Working Group was a big setback for leftist Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, who, frankly, Gary, is struggling to secure fresh funds to keep his government afloat while presenting a comprehensive reform plan and arguing for debt relief. Yeah, I think it's looking increasingly like uh, Greece is going to ultimately uh, leave the Union and default. Well, analysts, Gary, are saying Athens is going to run out of money on April the 20th unless it gets new cash. So watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, Gary, uh, the Eurozone's modest economic recovery was gathering further momentum in March. Uh, data firm Market, which surveys more than 5,000 businesses across the Eurozone, said its Composite Purchasing Managers Index, which is a measure of activity in the manufacturing and services sector, rose to 46-month high of 54.1 in March. That's up from 43.3. Now, Gary, that's important because a reading of below 50 indicates activity is declining, but this one is above 50 and it indicates it's increasing, which is good. Yeah, and it's a good number, actually, looking back over the history of it. Well, yeah, they're saying uh, the pickup in activity is likely to be sustained because new orders are rising at the fastest pace since May 2011 and businesses hiring new workers at the fastest rate since August 2011. And all of this is adding signs that the Eurozone economy is finally emerging from a long period of new stagnation. And I think it's helped by lower oil prices, a weakening euro, and firming confidence following the European Central Bank's launch of a new stimulus program. Absolutely. And uh, meanwhile to China, and but their manufacturing sector has slipped to an 11-month low. According to a private survey, the HSBC China manufacturing PMI dropped to 49.2 in March, that's down from 50.7 in February. And anything below 50, of course, indicates contraction. So that's not good, Gary. No, China, I think their growth rate is, is dropping at uh, not a good sign at all and particularly no good for us. Now, there's an interesting uh, debate going on around China's planned Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Now, the new development bank is moving forward despite opposition from the US after France, Germany, Italy and even long-time ally, US ally Britain all gave it their blessing. And China's finance ministry said that Switzerland and Luxembourg are also planned to join the bank and Switzerland will formally become a founding member of the bank later this month if it's approved by other members. And Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, though, in Australia says uh, Australia's made no final decision yet about Australian involvement, and the matter is under what she calls active consideration. So watch this space. Yeah, some say that Australia's lagging back is uh, going to cost us a bit in the future, but, uh, you know, the weight of international opinions clearly is joined with China. That's right. And a, a new report shows Australia's digital economy is now worth, Gary, $79 billion. 
Uh, that's a report from Deloitte Access Economics, and that's going to provide plenty of food of thought for Canberra as it debates the best economic course forward. Deloitte Access Economics, the Connected Continent Report, prepared for Google, provided a valuation which far exceeds the prediction that Australia's digital economy would be valued at $70 billion in 2016. They're now saying it's worth uh, $79 billion. Mm. And uh, they're also saying the it will overtake traditional economic sectors like agriculture and retail. And by 2020, the digital economy will be valued at $139 billion and comprise 7.3% of GDP, which is pretty good, Gary. It is indeed, and, and uh, you know, hopefully it'll employ a lot of people. But, you know, the transition to uh, for people is uh, is going to be a bit, a bit difficult as well. Sure. But, I mean, what's driving it, of course, is uh, access to the internet through mobile phones, of course, and the cloud and machine-to-machine technology, and that's growing. Yeah, the uh, Internet of Things, as they call it, is uh, is going to have a huge effect upon how we operate. Now, uh, last week, Gary, uh, Prime Minister Tony Abbott said the budget would be dull and unexciting, but it doesn't mean there won't be spending cuts. Assistant Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says the government remains absolutely committed to cutting government spending, and he told Network 10 we have to lower it and ultimately we're cutting it. The government is also promising a childcare package to help get hundreds of thousands of women back into the workforce. Yeah, which would be good, you know, as long as they've got the jobs in the industry to uh, and commerce to employ them. Yeah, but uh, Joe Hockey sort of was telling a meter of the Liberals and Nationals uh, that the falling iron ore price, which is down to around 55 bucks now, uh, and it was 95 during the time of the budget, is actually putting a big hole in the government finances and he's expecting the budget to remain in deficit for quite a few years. What, 2020, 2025 perhaps? Oh, maybe, maybe. Mm. They're not giving a time frame. Meanwhile, uh, the latest ANZ Roy Morgan confidence index uh, nudged a bit higher. It rose 0.5% in the week ending March, building on a similar rise in the previous week. Uh, but confidence levels remain below their long-run average. And I might add that a spike in government payments has shattered Tony Abbott's hope of slashing outlays within a year. The spending pressure is another setback for Tony Abbott in the lead-up to the May budget as uh, Cabinet Ministers uh, meet this week to hammer out a strategy to avoid dramatic new cuts. And um, days after Abbott tipped a broad budget balance within five years, a previously confidential Treasury document is showing government payments will jump this year when they're meant to start falling. And Treasury charts show the government will not bring payments back to their long-term average as a share of the economy until 2021 at the earliest. So that fits in with what we're talking before about Joe Hockey. That's right. And, of course, there's that big chunk of money that they're still going to give to the automotive industry. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, to uh, what's happening with Network 10 and American cable giant Discovery Communications has walked away from its offer to buy the main assets of 10 Network Holdings with Foxtel after rejecting the 10 board's alternative offer that it take only a 14.99% stake and a board seat at the embattled broadcaster. And that cast out over the future funding of 10 and over Foxtel's efforts to be part of a consortium that has controlled the third-place commercial network. And 10's ratings have shown signs of recovery, but analysts believe the loss-making company is going to run out of money within two years unless it gets a cash injection. And uh, Discovery was said to have grown frustrated with the sales process and was surprised by the level of detail and local press coverage monitoring the high-profile auction of the network. 
which boasts four Australian billionaires on its shared register. So Foxtel now has to, has three choices. It can either walk away from 10, find a new partner, or pursue the offer to buy 14.99% of a stake on its own. Yeah, if it's got the money, I guess. I don't know how all that's going to work, do you? It's, uh, no. Very tangled. Oh. No, no. And meanwhile, um, Double I Net investors have revolted over rival TPG's $1.4 billion takeover bid. Investors, including Ionet founder Michael Malone, are angry that the company's board recommended the offer. And they're calling for shareholders to reject the takeover bid, and they want the board to step down. Another substantial investor, Paul Hannon from BT Investment Management, is critical of the board. And the IINET board announced the TPG takeover bid less than two weeks ago, and on Monday it was forced to hold a teleconference with analysts and investors to defend the deal. And IONET's founder and former chief executive, Michael Malone, has said the IONET board has to resign. And uh, he owns about 4% of IONET. And he doesn't believe the $8.60 a share cash offer is structured in the best interest of shareholders. And they're, they're not talking about how it's going to affect staff or customers. And Credit Suisse last week said the TPG Telecom's proposed takeover was a bargain and too low. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's a fair point too because if TPG gets it, uh, gets IONet, that will put it in a very, very good position to compete with Telstra. Well, what's interesting is that Malone this week was talking to a conference and he was saying that uh, TPG is going to end up buying Vodafone and that means it's only going to leave three players in the market. It's going to leave Telstra, Optus and TPG. Yeah, yeah. Malone's pretty smart. I mean, he's been in this business for a long time and I think he can see which way the wind's blowing. Now, uh, Gary, another piece of news is that the... Australia's biggest union has agreed to slash weekend penalties for the retail sector and it's a breakthrough deal in South Australia and it could affect up to 40,000 workers and it could be replicated across country. In the first agreements of its kind for small business in Australia, penalty rates are going to be abolished on Saturdays, halved on Sundays in exchange for a higher base rate of pay and other improved conditions. Now, this template agreement signed by the uh, Shop Distributed and Allied Union and Business SA can be adopted by small businesses if agreed to by employees. It would apply to two-thirds of South Australia's 60,000 retail workers employed in small and medium-sized businesses. And it reduces penalty rates for Sunday from 100% loading to 50%. It cuts public holiday rates from 150% to 100% and abolishes penalty rates on Saturdays and weekday evenings. And in exchange, workers get a higher base wage a guaranteed 3% annual pay rise, an unprecedented right to refuse to work on Sundays and public holidays. It also gives permanent workers the right to every second weekend off. And for a full-time shop assistant, the base rate of pay jumps from by 8% from 703.90 a week to 760 a week. But each workplace would have to submit a signed agreement to the Fair Work Commission to pass a better-off overall test to come into effect. And the government, of course, has asked the Productivity Commission to look to conduct a public inquiry to examine the workplace relations framework, but it's ruled out making any changes before the next election. But this is going to be interesting, Gary, about how it's going to affect penalties. Well, yeah, and I think it's very sensible because if you look at the way a lot of small businesses are going, they're declining to pay these penalty rates and and a lot of them are closing. So the workers are faced with quite a conundrum. I mean, if they maintain they want to keep the penalty rates, they may not have a job to have a penalty rate on. That's right. It's going to be quite an issue. And that's it for this week, Gary. Terrific, Leon. It's really good. And uh, we look forward to uh, being with people 
next week, won't we? That's right. Next week we have uh, Dan Ferguson from Design Crowd. Uh, they are a crowdfunding design outfit and uh, they're a startup and they're going to be interesting to talk to. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.